Kabukicho used to be Sin City, where younger women would make older men feel good about themselves. It's still not too hard to find places where this happens. But it also used to be Gangster Central, where the Yakuza held court. That's less true now. Instead, the developers are moving in, the tourists are more or less welcome, and some of the entertainment has even become family-friendly. The Humax Pavilion has been here for a while, helping humans maximize their potential. Forty years later came a hotel-cinema combo with Godzilla peeking out the top. And any day now, there will be a new 48-floor tower. In today's Tokyo, even Kabukicho is getting cleaned up. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're exploring three areas in the west of Tokyo, which mushroomed in the post-war period, providing a vision of what this city, and maybe cities worldwide, might become. All three became famous entertainment districts. All three have also, therefore, been subject to the attention of both the authorities and the developers. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this episode, we'll follow the swirling currents of post-war political economy through Shinjuku, At its centre is the world's busiest train station, linking two very different halves. On one side, a warren of places to eat, drink and make merry, and once to foment revolution. On the other, a forest of corporate and municipal towers. We'll begin a few hundred metres east of the station, at the Shinjuku Gate to the Shinjuku Gyoen National Garden. We'll meet you there. So here we are, standing outside the entrance to Shinjuku Gyoen National Park. We're at the Shinjuku Gate. We've got the park ahead of us. We've got the information centre on the left with a bicycle holding pen and a small road leading past to the east. At the end of the 16th century, a long time ago, this land around here was given to a Mr. Naito. He served the Tokugawa quite well, so this is his reward. And in the 18th century, his successors build the garden, which is the predecessor of what's in front of us now. At the end of 19th century, when the old aristocracy is going away, it's converted first to an agricultural centre, then a botanical garden, and finally an imperial garden. By the early 20th century, you have a Japanese traditional garden, a French formal garden, and an English landscape garden here, as well as a nine-hole golf course in 1920. The golf-mad Prince Hirohito, later Emperor Showa, practices his swing here on a regular basis. The whole thing's destroyed in the war, though, of course, and it becomes a national park in 1949. But it is the site 
of Emperor Showa's funeral in 1989. More interesting, it's also right next to the Koshu Kaido. It's one of five official post roads built early in the 17th century, leading out to the west of the city. The first post station on that road is a long way from Nihonbashi, which we've talked about in another walk. So at the end of the 17th century, a new post station, Shinjuku, starts here. And of course, where there's travel, there's sex. Soon enough, there are brothels. A saying at the time said that irises, that is, sex workers, are blooming in the horse droppings between Yotsuya and Shinjuku. So it's closed down early in the 18th century due to official concerns about this, but it's open again by the end of that century. From the start, then, transport and pleasure have weaved together to form the Shinjuku we know today, but it does take time. Rail arrives here in the late 19th century, but further west. Things start to get going following the 1923 earthquake, but it's in the post-war period from the 1960s that Shinjuku really takes off as the city begins to expand and to move west into the suburbs. The story here, the story of Shinjuku, has three parts, therefore. First, there's a demand for diversion, which has proved irrepressible, despite the best efforts of the authorities. We'll see that as we make our way towards the station. Second, there's the station itself. It's a wonder of the contemporary world, an inexhaustible stream of customers for shopping and eating, drinking, and still, sex. And finally... There's the very different corporate high-rise world that has emerged on the other side of the station in the last half century. Come the end of the 20th century, it's also where the metropolitan government built itself a new imposing home. So we're going to turn our back on the garden now and heading just a short way down the street to the pedestrian crossing we can see on the corner. So we're coming up towards that intersection now, and we're about to cross the road, but glancing to our left, we can see Shinjuku's Empire State Building. This is actually the NTT Dokomo building. We've already met the company in other walks, a mobile phone company. This was completed in 2000 on the site of the freight station. It's a relay station for mobile phone service, plus a little bit of a call center inside. And the clock is installed two years later to commemorate the company's 10th anniversary. It's the second tallest clock tower in the world, but it's only the fourth tallest building in Tokyo. But we're turning our back on that clock tower now and crossing the intersection over to our right, making our way to the next main intersection. Sociologist Shunya Yoshimi has long been interested in how people have gathered in particular parts of the city. He talked about early modern Sakariba in our walk around the commoner's capital. Here, he explains how Shinjuku became a magnet after World War II. Because the 1960s was the era of the rapid economic increase, and Tokyo has expanded. And so many young people came to Tokyo in rural areas. So they came to Tokyo and they tried to enjoy the new culture and modern culture and Western culture. But they gathered 
especially in Shinjuku. But their, their behavior and their desire is not, not so much, how to say, completely controlled as today. And they like to do some kinds of festive things, and revolutionary things. Shinjuku was one of the, the area, not only gathering, but also new culture and a new modern culture has taken place. We'll hear more from Yoshimi as we make our way through other parts of Neo-Tokyo. So we've come to the next intersection. On our right, we've got a Dotor coffee shop. Its branding is brown, but it's selling a bunch of pink stuff right now because the cherries are just about to pop. Over the street, we've got a 7-Eleven, of course. But we're pausing here just a moment because we're about to enter a very particular neighborhood in Shinjuku. Roll the clock back. Already in the 18th century, Shinjuku is known for sex work and for transport. And the former post town's reputation for good times persists. In 1873, the new government starts regulating how brothels can actually rent out tatami mats where the sex workers plied their trade. There were 53 brothels along the road at that time, with prostitutes waiting for customers in front. That practice is banned in 1921, and so they replace them with the photographs of the women working inside. But the same year, there's a huge fire. Then, in 1923, the earthquake levels the rest of the city and the other brothel districts. And this one takes off, catering to the office workers who are now passing through the station near here. That district burns down in 1945. The Americans, of course, try to abolish licensed prostitution. But it does persist here until the Japanese government in 1958 passes an anti-prostitution law. It doesn't mean the end of sex work, of course, which persists here in the form of nude studios, soap lands, scattered among the condos, offices, shops and bars. But sex work gradually migrates to the northwest. We'll see the neighborhood where it concentrates in just a bit. And by late 1960s, this area, Nicho, the second district of Shinjuku, has become an LGBT haven. There's a traditional acceptance, at least of male-male sexual relations in Japan. But with Western influence in the late 19th century, this turns to animosity. Homosexual activity is only briefly criminalized in the 1870s, but the revolution leaves an enduring taboo. Early in the post-war period, it's not here but Ueno that is best known as a place for the gay community to congregate in theaters and in the park. In that, it's got a lot in common with other cities in the world. I'm thinking of London. But there is one gay bar here in 1951, and more move into the former red-light businesses when prostitution is prohibited in 1958. There are gay discos in the 70s. Nicho becomes known as a gay town in the 80s, but it's still largely underground. And then, in the late 80s, there's a boom. By the 2010s, there are over 400 LGBT-related businesses in this small neighborhood, including more than 250 gay bars and a growing number of lesbian bars too. Nicho, this district, is also central to the growing acceptance of LGBT life in the wider culture. There's an AIDS vigil in 1986, there's an LGBT film festival, and the Tokyo Pride Parade starts in the 1990s. Same-sex couples in Japan still lack legal recognition, but there's a clear majority 
in public opinion polls in favor of same-sex marriage. So we're now going to walk through a tiny corner of this small, intimate district. We're crossing the road in front of us, heading for the 7-Eleven, and then we're going to leave it on our left as we walk down the small, quiet street. So we're on this small street now, we're just going to go up two blocks and we can see already some bar buildings with some indicative signs. Given the nature of the community's history, many of the businesses here are traditionally quite discreet, but on the left we're just passing Dragon Men, which is advertising quite proudly. On the next corner, by some vending machines, we're turning left and up ahead of us we can see Lady Bump Izakaya, a different kind of business maybe. We're turning left now, heading for the main road. When we get there, we'll turn right and then cross it over the next pedestrian crossing. So we've crossed over the street and we're heading straight over now, down another bar street, if you like. We've got drinking establishments on our left, zero wedding on our right. We're heading for the end, where we can see smoke dining on the third floor. So we're standing under the smoke dining sign now. And we're just pausing here. We're in Kanamecho, not Nicho anymore. It has very similar origins to the district we've just left, and it is the starting point for Nicho as a gay town before that big main road is driven through. This, though, continues as a so-called regular bar district. You can hear the drinks they're shuttling around. But on our left across the street, we've got a slightly different building. This is Sue Hirote, and it is what it looks like, a theatre, albeit a small one. This is one of four traditional rakugo, or storytelling, theatres, that are left in Japan. It still has three performances a day. It was founded in the late 19th century, rebuilt after the war, nearly went under during COVID, but it only costs 3,000 to get in and you will have a very good time. We're turning left again now in front of Suehirote, making our way to the next main road. There we're going to turn right.
we're coming to the end of this street now, Sue Hiro Dori, named after the theatre we've just seen, with two little figures of Rakugo tellers perched on top of the sign. Right ahead of us, we've got a KO building and a Starbucks as part of it, and we're turning right down to the next main intersection of Shinjuku. So we've made our way to the intersection. This is Shinjuku San Chome crossing. It's the main crossing in Shinjuku. Ahead of us, we've got traffic roaring down towards the station with an avenue of advertisements hanging from the lampposts. Boys and girls with pink hair, cherry blossoms rampant. It is that season after all. We already know that nightlife continued to flourish here in the 20th century even when the sex work is moving elsewhere. But Shinjuku also begins to take off as a daytime destination. It's the 1923 earthquake that's the turning point. It levels the other destinations for shopping, for eating, for drinking, for having fun. Ginza, Asakusa, we've seen these on other walks in Tokyo. But Shinjuku is left standing. The ground here is firmer. It's not as close to the bay. Also, there are rail connections here, both to the suburbs out west and through the city. So soon there are new businesses cropping up. There's a luxury fruit parlor and a department store in 1926, a bakery turned cafe serving curry thanks to its half-Indian owners, a charcoal business turned into a bookstore and gallery, a seven-floor movie theater and dance hall, all of those in 1927, and then a kimono shop turned department store, moves here from Kando, which we've already met in another walk, in 1933. It's the department store directly across the road. This is Isetan. More recently, it's absorbed a much older department store, Mitsukoshi, which we met in our walk, Commoners City. The transition tells you something about the move of Tokyo West. But already in 1930, this neighborhood has its own magazine, Great Shinjuku, which gives a flavor of how it's evolving. It's the masses of people spewed out by Shinjuku Station who form the hustle and bustle of Shinjuku. When a crowd this big decides that it's going to the department store, you're going to cross the street with traffic whizzing by whether you like it or not. The streets of Shinjuku are filled with strings of trams and cars and buses and trucks and bicycles coming and going from early morning until late at night without a moment's gap. Of course, even if Shinjuku can survive an earthquake, it's destroyed by the firebombing in 1945. But things pick back up quite quickly. There's a black market down the street by the station five days after the surrender. In 1947, there's Japan's first strip show, at the movie theatre, with models standing still in frames recreating Western paintings, Botticelli, Rubens. The proprietors weren't too clear about how the government might crack down. In fact, they soon escape the frame and start moving around. Retail, too, soon comes back. There are new department stores here in the 60s. By then, by the 1960s, though, Shinjuku is also an epicentre of protest. But to see that, we're going to move on. We're crossing the street to Isetan, but then we're turning an immediate right and we're going to follow the department store building to the next main intersection.
So we're at the next main intersection now. On the other side of the road, over on the right, we can see another department store. It looks as if it's called Oi Oi. In fact, it's called Marui. And beyond that, the Isechan parking garage. But we're heading over the street and then to the left, where we can see a Tori gate. We're going to pass through that and into a shrine. So we've passed through three Torrey gates, one in plain concrete, two bright vermilion, and there is some blissful quiet here. We're in an Inari shrine. We've seen them in every walk we've done in Tokyo. There's one here by the 17th century, a little further south. That plot of land, though, gets taken over, and so it moves here a century later, at the end of the 18th. A branch house of the Tokugawa ruling family has a flower garden, and so this is called Hanazono Flower Garden Shrine. It's rebuilt in concrete in the 1960s, having been burned in the war. And in the 1960s, Shinjuku, the area around us, is becoming the center of a counterculture. That counterculture combines two things. On the one hand, there was a political agenda. There had been a massive protest in Japan, concentrated in Tokyo, thousands on the streets in 1960, protesting the renewal of the security treaty with the U.S. That movement continued later into the decade. On the other hand, there was avant-garde art. Together, these two things combined to provide a home for those who would not otherwise have one. In 1966, the soon-to-be publisher of a gossip magazine arrives in Tokyo and comes to Shinjuku. From when I first arrived, it felt as if even a person from the outer prefectures, like myself, could fit in there. Shinjuku was neither as fashionable nor as beautiful as Roppongi or Ginza, but it looked like a city equipped with an enormous absorption mechanism that would accept anything—country bumpkins, outlaws, gangsters, beggars, homosexuals, prostitutes. Already by that point, there's underground theatre blossoming here. It includes Karajuro, who sets up a red tent here in this shrine in 1967. He's trying to revive really early kabuki when it was by no means an approved entertainment. There's erotic elements. There's the carnivalesque, and it continues down to the present. There are also performance collectives in the streets outside, taking nudity and protest onto the street. There's also Japan's first art house cinema close by from the early 1960s. It showed underground films, but it also provided quite substantial grants to aspiring filmmakers. One of them is Oshima Nagisa. In 1969, he creates Diary of a Shinjuku Thief. It's about the affair of the thief with a bookstore clerk. The film ends with a riot and sex in counterpoint. Shinjuku also continues as an epicenter of protest. In August 1967, a freight train with gas for the U.S. military planes crashes and burns inside the station here. 
1968, protests against the Vietnam War are spreading worldwide, and 20,000 protesters occupy Shinjuku Station on International Anti-War Day. They're trying to turn it into a liberated quarter. They succeed for a while. They overwhelm 3,000 or so riot police. They're observed by 60,000 bystanders. Eventually, it takes 10,000 police to clean them out. Even after the police have suppressed that protest, though, Shinjuku continues as a magnet. In 1969, you've got folk guerrillas, a combination of activists, students and singers, who gather at plazas on either side of the station. The gathering in February is turned into an underground film. In June, there are 7,000 who have to be dispersed with tear gas. Slowly, the political edge of Shinjuku subsides. Young people start to move south to Shibuya, which we'll explore in our next episode. And since then, Shinjuku, like the city more generally, has been overwritten with more recent development. Here and there, though, occasionally, the echoes of the 1960s are still audible. So we're leaving the shrine now and the radical art that's been made here. We're heading up the steps towards the main shrine building where people are rattling the bells to wake up the gods. We're going to leave it on our right, head out onto the street and head straight over into a warren of tiny bar shacks. So we've come down the steps from the shrine now and we're on the street. Over to our right we can see Bond's old-fashioned American-style pub since 1979. We're crossing the street and turning left at that pub, leaving Bond's on our right. So we've just passed Bond's and we're faced by a whole row of tiny two-story bars. I've got Milk Bar Zori, I've got a Flower Garden, Jazz Decoy, Bar Whiskey, Rosso, and more, and more, and more. This is Golden Guy. Originally, it's a black market, relocated by the American authorities after the war from the east entrance to the station. Then it becomes what we see now, a drinking area, with these tiny bars patronized by very well-known writers, editors, film directors, and more, the Bundan in Japanese. At the time, it was thought that, quote, anyone who considers themselves as an artist should have their go-to bar in the Golden Guy. Most of the bars, though, only have six to eight seats in them. It's intimate here, too. In the 1980s, the whole area, these few blocks, are under threat from real estate sharks, and there was some arson. But there's regeneration in the 1990s. It's even listed in the Green Book by Michelin. It's the set for Midnight Diner, a recent Netflix series. It's where people come after hours to hang out in their favorite joint. It's also therefore a place where nostalgia is easy enough. That topic is one that we'll come back to and see again and again. So we're heading down this street towards the tree we can see at its end, and we're going to turn left in front of that tree along what was once a former streetcar line. 
So we've come out back onto the main drag and the traffic is roaring again. We're on Yasukuni Dori. It leads to the shrine that we've seen in another walk. We're right opposite Shinjuku Piccadilly, although those characters for Piccadilly are in a Japanese script. It's got Muji on the first floor. This was originally a post-war movie complex. It only used Piccadilly for the screen showing Western films. In time, though, the brand swallowed the whole complex. We're turning right here, down this main street. We can see it curving away towards the left in the distance with taller buildings behind. We're going down a few blocks to turn right then into Kabukicho. We'll meet you on the corner where we're going to turn. So we've come a short way down this street. We're between two entrances to the subway, and we've got an arch which tells us that we're about to enter Kabukicho Sakura Dori. Sakura is cherry. Most cherries are pink, but pink has more than one meaning, especially here in Kabukicho. So we're walking under the arch down Sakura Dori a couple of blocks. We've turned left in front of the family mart, and then on the right there's a garden in front of the shrine, which is where we're standing now. A little bit of respite from all the blaring adverts. Kabukicho didn't always look or sound like this. Originally it was a wetland, it became a duck hunting ground in the late 19th century. And then it was filled in and became a quiet residential area, if you can believe it. It burned to the ground though, like the rest of the city, in 1945. Post-war, initially, it became a thriving entertainment district with a major theatre, multiple cinemas, which we've already seen. But it's also where the sex trade comes, when the anti-prostitution law comes into effect in 1958. There are saunas, there are Turkish baths, soap lands, which gives you some indication of what they're about, as well as love hotels and more. And so there's Yakuza activity here, gangsters making the most of the opportunity. Famously, they're documented by an American journalist at the end of the century, and that has been turned into a recent TV series, Tokyo Vice. More interesting, the Yakuza activity here is also immortalized in a video game, Yakuza, which uses Kabukicho as its set. It's been running continuously since 2005 on. By then, though, the Yakuza are on the decline. There's been a crackdown. It started with a conservative governor of Tokyo in the 2000s, and it's ongoing to this day. They're cleaning up this neighborhood and many others. Also, the Yakuza now have problems recruiting. Young people don't want to go into what's obviously a dangerous line of work. 
There's an aging membership. One of the gangs has actually formed a softball team who realized that they were a little scary for their opponents until they started dressing in pink. So there's a shift going on in Kabukicho, from sex work to regular nightlife. It includes some rather strange phenomena. There's a robot restaurant just down the street where young women dress up in costumes to pretend they too are robots. It's becoming family-friendly, but you don't have to look too hard still to find slightly sketchier activity. If you look at any of the bar buildings around us, it might start on the first floor as a respectable restaurant, but in the basement and up top, there are other things going on. But we're exiting the park now, continuing down this small side street, one more block. We're then turning right on Central Street, Kabukicho's main drag. So we've turned right on Central Street, and immediately ahead of us we've got Godzilla peeking over a building. The building itself is vast, tall, it houses Toho cinemas, it houses a hotel gracery up top, and it's got posters, but Godzilla still rules the roost. We're turning left in front of this building, and then right around it. We're still next to the Toho building, but then on our left we've got a square with two more striking bits of Shinjuku. On our right, white, is the Humax Pavilion. This company was started in 1947. A Taiwanese businessman was trying to revive the pre-war Moulin Rouge theatre. He goes on and he opens this building in 1970. Its name is changed in 1987. Basically, it says... We're maximizing human potential by creating a wonderful time with watching, eating, and playing. But then on its left, past an apartment hotel, we have Tokyo's Kabukicho Tower. We're going to hear much more about Tokyo in our next episode on Shibuya, their home patch. This isn't even open yet. It's still surrounded by construction awnings. Previously, what was here was the largest cinema in Japan. It included a skate rink later turned into a bowling alley, but that closed in 2014. It wasn't fit for purpose in 21st century Kabukicho. What we see in front of us now 
is somewhere with a 1.5 thousand capacity music venue in the basement, an entertainment food hall, whatever that means, then eight floors of non-food entertainment and two, count them, luxury hotels. Maybe the closest thing to this elsewhere is Outernet in London, but that hardly matches up to this in terms of scale. We're walking towards Tokyo's Kabukicho Tower now, turning left in front of it, then immediately right. So we're between the soaring glass of the Tokyo Kabukicho Tower now and Tokyo Mystery Circus, whatever that is. Ahead of us, we've got a low-slung red building. We're heading for that and we're going to wait on the corner. So in front of us, we've got this low red building connected to a much higher, incredibly thin red rendition of the same thing. This is Seibu Shinjuku Station, attached to a Prince Hotel. Seibu is a late 19th century suburban railway which takes off post-war with a merger in 1945. There's a build-up of its business empire under the two sons of the founder, a Mr. Tsutsumi. Here, rail arrives in 1952. It's joined by the Prince Hotel the following year. The son running both businesses is Yoshiaki. He's the world's richest man in the late 80s, apparently, and arrested for securities fraud in 2005, unsurprisingly. We're going to meet the other brother, Seiji, in our next episode in Shibuya. We're heading down past the station now. We're going to cross the first of two main busy roads. We're aiming for the station square at the east exit of Shinjuku Station. We'll meet you there. So far, we've been looking at Shinjuku as a place for play, dating back four centuries. Now we're going to explore more recent developments. The station itself and the world of corporate work and municipal ambition that's emerged on its far side. We're still in Shinjuku East Exit Station Square. Right next to us, we've got the station with a Starbucks underneath. We've got the screens. On the far side, we can see the towers we're going to head to next. But the station is a story on its own. It has a slow, small start. In 1885, it's a stop on what eventually becomes the Yamanote-sen, looping around the whole of inner Tokyo. But it's opposed by the post town, which is about a kilometer to our east now. They're fearing the competition. So it's put here out in a thicket among the fields. It's hard to imagine today. At that time, on a good day, the station would see 50 passengers Another line followed in 1889, but there was still only one exit and one train every few hours. There were two tea stalls to while away the time. In 1915, the private lines start to arrive, cutting through the expanding western suburbs. Then, the 1923 earthquake. We've mentioned this before. Shinjuku is left standing. People move west from the devastated flatlands closer to the bay. Traffic takes off, therefore. There are more private lines. The east exit, where we now are, becomes a commercial hub, as we've seen in the first half of this episode. 1945, 
is bad. 90% of the buildings are destroyed, but the road and the rail layout survives. So there's a new station building in 1964, the one still in front of us. It's the busiest in Tokyo in 1966. There's a west exit, there are underground shopping arcades in the 1970s. By the 1980s, there's a rush hour five times a day, people say. Quote, commuters in the morning and the evening, shoppers before lunch, drinkers trying to catch the last train, and young people who've partied all night and waited to catch the first one. So today, Shinjuku has multiple JR lines, three private lines, three subways, and, before COVID at least, 3.64 million passengers a day. That means 1.26 billion a year. It's the busiest station in the world. It's worth noting the top three are all here in Tokyo. Shibuya, where we're going next, has just over 1 billion. Ikebukuro, just to our north, just under 1 billion. Only five of the top 50 busiest stations in the world are not in Japan. And Europe doesn't do well. Paris-Nord comes in at number 24. That's only 292 million. And the US and the UK don't even feature. Waterloo has 94 million. Still doesn't work very well. Penn Station in New York, 10 million a year. Only three times as many as the number that passes through here every day. Given the traffic, it needs a makeover. It's showing its age. So there's plans for a Shinjuku Grand Terminal, a redevelopment of 10.1 hectares around here at a cost of 72.8 billion Japanese yen. It's already started. There's a new underground passageway to our south. There are going to be new exits. There are going to be lots more towers. It's not going to be completed until 2046. It's going to take 23 years. But we're going to get to the other side of the station through the old tunnel where the folk singers gathered in 1969. We're leaving the square now, heading back a little bit up the lines and then diving left into the underground passageway. Shinjuku is witness to the relentless pace of development and has seen its fortunes change over the years. Here's artist Toru Matsushita on how development itself has changed and how Shinjuku may know, be like coming Japan back to life. Japan is a place with earthquakes. Ground is very weak, so lifetime of the buildings are very short. It was common idea. We have to destruct buildings in 50 years. It's about like 50 years from the Japanese um, high economic growth, so lots of things are end of the lifetime for the, all the buildings. The main shop of the Tokyo department store is in the progress of destruction right now. But new buildings are um, highly designed for kicking out unexpected things and people. So in Miyashita Park, you know, you can't go there with the drinks and they don't let the homeless people get in there. In my world, they are always trying to erase noise, making city to a very silent place, you know. And also, internet kind of changes cultures, but city is very beautiful with the noise. Shibuya as the center of the culture is really ending, because clubs are shut down because of COVID. A lot of people in the generation say, oh, Shibuya is dead, Shibuya is dead, from like 90s. But what I think interesting is that like Shinjuku is like coming back to place for young people right now. It's kind of like history. Come back to Shibuya to 
Shinjuku, you know, all that like cultural place after the war was Shinjuku and moved to Shibuya and coming back to Shinjuku, I feel now. We'll be able to compare the story of Shinjuku with that of Shibuya in the next episode of this walk. So we've made our way through the underground passageway now, past some unhoused folk sleeping rough. Tokyo, like most big cities, does not provide enough homes for its people. And we've come out the other side. We're standing between a Uniqlo on our left and a much older coffee shop on our right. We're standing on what was an old road out of the early modern city, Omekaido. It's not one of the main five post roads, but it's developed early to transport lime for the land reclamation that the shogun needs. And on our right, we've got an echo of the post-war black market, Omoide Yokocho. It started up here now. It's replicated throughout the city, even in upscale mall developments. There's a lot of nostalgia for that hard time right after the war, when people endured but also managed to relax. From post-war black markets then to 21st century fast fashion, we get a sense of the distance that's been travelled, both by Tokyo and Japan, but also specifically by Shinjuku. We're going to pick up the story now of what happens in the 1970s as a forest of towers begins to sprout here. We're heading straight over the road in front of us. We've crossed another busy main road and we're walking down the back of Odakyu department store. As we crossed that road, glancing left, we could see that another huge building was sheathed. It's being redeveloped. It's actually the same store. This is another private railway company which exploited the development of this sub-centre in the 60s. Now it's in the middle of constructing a 48-floor, 260-metre-tall skyscraper, part of this redevelopment project of the station. It's going to be the third tallest in the city. But we're continuing down the street, heading for the blue pedestrian bridge we can see ahead of us. So we're climbing up onto the bridge now. We're following it around to the left all the way and coming down the stairs on the other side next to a dull grey building with a lower, lighter one on the other side of the street. So we've come down off the bridge between those two buildings and we're now in West Shinjuku. It's almost entirely a post-war creation. Until the 1960s, this whole area was taken up by a huge Yodobashi water purification plant, which had opened back in the late 19th century. There had been cholera epidemics in the mid-1880s. You needed to clean the water up. There was a bit of residential development here after the earthquake in 1923, but it's still very quiet. Soon enough... The economy starts churning, Tokyo growing, and something has to be done to disperse its functions and its people. Shinjuku, specifically West Shinjuku, where we now are, is identified as a sub-center of Fukutoshin. That water purification plant is moved out in 1965. A park is opened in 1968. The land is divided into 11 lots, 
and skyscrapers begin to sprout in the early 1970s. On our right, the lower cream-shaped building is actually a museum. It's attached to the building next to it, a kind of swooping monolith up into the sky. That's the Sompo Insurance Tower, built in 1976. The museum, a more contemporary shape maybe, opened in 2020. It was originally on the 42nd floor of the other thing. And that's the museum that bought Van Gogh's sunflowers, famously for 40 million US dollars, or 5.3 billion yen, in 1987. On our left, more nondescript, the Shinjuku L Tower, a collaboration between an insurance company, a bank and a brewery in 1989. We're going to walk up this street between these two buildings, just a little way. On our left, we'll soon see maybe the best bit of architecture around here. We've got to the next corner and on our right another nondescript building, the Shinjuku Center building. It's another joint project. It's the seventh one to go up around here in 1979. But on our left we've got something much more interesting. This is the Mode Gakuen Cocoon Tower. It was the skyscraper of the year in 2008. It's by the Tange Associates. We'll meet the man who gave that business his name in a bit. And it's called a cocoon and kind of looks like one because it nurtures students at a fashion school, a technology and design school, and a medical one. We're continuing straight down this street past the Mode Gakuen Cocoon Tower to the next corner where we're going to turn right. We've reached the next corner. This is Chuodori, the main street through West Shinjuku. And we want to cross over it diagonally to some more nondescript grey towers on the other corner. We've reached those nondescript grey buildings now. It's actually a campus for Tokyo Urban Tech. It's a late 19th century trade school which was rebranded in 1989. Over on the right, on the other side of the street, we can see a kind of glass-fronted building. That's the Mitsui block here. They were the ones who built the first skyscraper down in Kasumigaseki in 1968. We saw it even though it's dwarfed by the buildings around it now in our walk around the imperial capital. They bought one of the 11 lots here that same year and completed that building in 1974. It was the tallest one in Japan for a while, but obviously not now. We're now continuing to the next block and the original skyscraper here on our left. So we've made it to the next block and we're right next to the Keio Plaza Hotel. On the corner it's advertising hair and makeup, flower, plaza, chapel. It's big in the wedding business. This is the original skyscraper here. Like Odakyu back down by the station, it's a pre-war private rail company which diversifies as the sub-centre plans come into being. They build a department store closer to the station in the early 60s and then this hotel which opens in 1971 with a wedding chapel in 1975. It's where I stayed in 1988 when I first arrived in Japan. And that dates me. 
we came out from Narita on these limousine buses and I plugged into Talking Heads. It was Stop Making Sense. And every move in the music was choreographed to the landscape on the way. But then they deposited us here in something that looked like cities anywhere else. It was a puzzling time. But we're not going to linger here. We're not in the nostalgia business. We're going to go down the steps directly in front of us, continuing under the road to the next block. So we've walked under a multi-lane road overhead and we're in the beginning of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government area here. Ahead of us there's a Tokyo Metropolitan Government number one building sign. So we're curving left into this plaza before these enormous buildings. So we've made our way into the plaza. We're facing the first metropolitan government building, soaring into the sky with two separate towers sprouting at the top of it. Over to the left, the second building, stacked more or less in the same idiom. This is actually the third home for Tokyo's local authority. The previous ones were in Marunouchi. We met them when we went around the imperial capital. The first, late 19th century, red brick. The second was 1957, by the same architect responsible for this. But already by the 70s, given Tokyo's growth, there are problems with upkeep, there's crowding, and so in 1985 they made the decision to move here, and they choose the same guy for the design. This was Tange Kenzo. He's the godfather, if you like, of the metabolist movement, which we've talked about in other areas of the city. Those transform into the mega structures we've also seen. Back in 1960, he'd come up with a slightly crazy plan, he was younger then, to actually more or less pave over Tokyo Bay, or at least connect each side of it with massive barn-like buildings suspended on bridges. But this is his late work. This is 1991. It comes in these three parts, the two buildings in front of us and the Metropolitan Assembly and the much lower building behind. When he was trying to sell the design in public, he talked about this being a Gothic cathedral for Tokyo. Notre Dame may have been mentioned. He also mentioned the integrated circuit that kind of provides its facade. It was the tallest building in Japan for a few years, but it isn't anymore, of course. But it wasn't cheap. Construction alone cost 157 billion yen, 1 billion US dollars at the time. Maintenance and management is still 4 billion yen or 30 million dollars a year, and it's not universally loved. I don't like it much either. This, where we're sitting, is meant to be a people's plaza. I've never seen this turn into the Palio of Siena. Instead, we get a vast, echoing, windy space, of which Mussolini might have been proud. So we don't want to end the walk here. We're going to continue diagonally across the plaza to a kind of red metal sculpture on the other side and make our way out to that road.
So we've escaped that plaza now, past a men's bathroom, and we're back on the main road. We're turning right. We're going to go under a series of road bridges. We'll find a park, thankfully, on the other side, and we're going to climb up into that. So we've climbed up these steps into Shinjuku Central Park and climbed up still more to a small hexagonal structure. It's the highest point in the park. In the day, it was a place for workers at the water purification plant to relax and look at Mount Fuji. There's no way we're going to see it today. Now it simply provides some relief from the concrete forest around us. We're looking back at the Tocho, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government building. Over to our right, there's the Park Hyatt Tokyo. That went up in 1994. It's where Bill Murray got lost in translation and took it out on Scarlett Johansson for an interminable couple of hours. Beyond it, there's Tokyo Opera City, more high buildings, including a new national theater. It's easy to be nostalgic in Shinjuku for late night discussions in small dive bars, for the possibility of protest in theaters and on the streets. But its truths might lie elsewhere, in a gay community, slowly winning acceptance, but also suffering straight tourism, in the station processing millions of commuters a day, in the forest of corporate towers and municipal ambition on this side of the tracks. There's still space in Shinjuku to do your own thing, but the demands of authority and the desires of capital seem to be winning the day. We'll see this even more clearly in the next episode, in Shibuya, which prospered as Tokyo's young shifted their attention from politics here in Shinjuku to culture and consumption a little further south. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Yelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.